Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Next Level Brands Podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses, workshops, and webinars for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you ever consider working with a coach in your business, someone with years of experience in consumer goods and retail sales and marketing, an advisor who knows what's coming next, limited opportunities are available now. Details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Hi, I'm Steve Clear, and today I have with me David Page, David is a two-time Emmy Award winner, and he changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, he spent time as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest. He has traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things, covering some of the biggest news stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Upon returning to the States, Page has pursued his passion both personally and professionally, show-producing Good Morning America, where he was involved in a substantial amount of food coverage, including cooking segments with Emra Lagasse, but it was producing diners, drive-ins, and dives for his first 11 seasons that took him in a deep dive into the world of American food, its vast variations, history, and evolutions. And he's now written about that in a highly praised book, Food Americana. Welcome to the show, David. Good to be here. Thanks, Steve. So, uh, you know, I mean, most of us are familiar with diners, drive-ins, and dives, Uh but the book, Food Americana, obviously much bigger than that, right? And, and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, how, what's happened with food, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about what's happened recently. But if we can, take us back and tell us, cocktail napkin, dream in the middle of the night, where did the idea for diners, drive-ins, and dives come from? I was post-network news in New York. Uh, I had left um, the news biz and was looking for something to do in television, that would be rewarding. And uh, on the one hand, that means I had a production company, quote unquote, or that I was freelance, quote unquote, or more to the point that I was unemployed and in need of money. So I called Al Roker, who had worked for me when I ran the weekend editions of the Today Show. This was before he was on the main show. Al has a production company, and at the time, he was doing a fair amount of work for the Food Network. So when I said to Al, you got anything you could pay me for? He said, sure, work on, work on some of this Food Network stuff. Now, I had developed a pretty serious interest in food while I was living internationally, but I'd never really been a food journalist. Nonetheless, I like to eat. And I started doing some segments for Al's show, Roker on the Road, and then he subcontracted a couple of hour-long programs to me for delivery to the Food Network, one of them being a history of diners. A while after that, when I began looking to sell projects directly to the network, I was on the phone, well, repeatedly with a particular executive there, a lovely woman in that she continued to take my calls, even though she hated my ideas. And I would call and call and call and pitch and pitch and pitch, and she would say, no, no, no. Finally, one day I'm on the phone with her pitching and in frustration, she says nicely, but she says, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, absolutely. I'm developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. It was late on a Thursday or Friday afternoon. And she said, we have a development meeting on Tuesday. 
get me a write-up on Monday. I said, absolutely. <laughs> Put the phone down and now had to deal with a problem because, no, I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Of course not. I had just invented the phrase, pulled it out of midair or any anatomical region you want to reference. <laughs> and I spent the weekend making phone calls and talking to people. And on Monday, I submitted a pitch for a one-hour special. And shortly thereafter, they picked it up. Now, it was not going to series. It was a placeholder for Guy. See, they thought he had real potential. Right. And they were looking for a primetime vehicle for him. So they had asked a couple of big deal production companies, the guys who wear the long pants and sell lots of stuff to the big networks for millions of dollars. They had asked a couple of them to submit proposals for a primetime show starring Guy. In the interim, they figured my special could keep his face on the air a little bit. We did the special. It rated very well. And then the pitches from these two big deal production companies came in and the network hated them, which left them in a quandary. They had nothing for Guy, except he had done this special that rated well. So they figured, let's give it a shot as a series. They commissioned a very short first season. And to their surprise, the first couple of episodes did very well, at which point an executive there told me, well, this is all fine and good. It's great. We don't think this series has legs. We right. don't think there are enough places in the U.S. for you to visit. So if we're lucky, we'll get, you know, maybe two, maybe even three seasons out of it, which I left the show after season 11. I believe they're now in season 30 something, <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, which, yeah. which proves the greatest single sentence ever written about Hollywood. William Goldman, the double Oscar winning screenwriter of Butch Cassidy and all the president's men. Those are two separate movies, yep. although putting them together might be funny. Um, <laughs> in his first book on Hollywood called Adventures in the Screen Trade, William Goldman spells out Goldman's rule of Hollywood. And this is to explain why certain films get picked up and others don't, and why certain films succeed and others don't. And Goldman's rule is, and this is a quote, no one knows anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's applicable to many more industries than, um, you know, than, than Hollywood. Yeah, I'd rather be lucky than good. Oh, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I did a workshop with a woman who sells these lovely infused honeys mm -hmm. at $25 a jar. And when I met her and I said, $25, she says, yeah, I'm on Amazon. And I said, there's no way you're, you're not going to, you know, and mm -hmm. no, I, I'm very, I'm very wrong. They're still, they're like $27 a bottle now. Inflation. And, and I buy them and yeah. And, and it's just, you know, and, and so it's just one of those things, but that's that's really funny. So it, it, in, in the show, it's an amazing success. And of course, Guy is an amazing personality and that that helps. But when you just mentioned and that's one of the things I actually thought about before the show, which was I'm going to ask David, how many of those places are there and how many of those places are left? If well, you're going there, to there, the there's film? a handful fewer more than. A yeah. Oh, yeah. Fewer, now, now, now that we've sure. gone through covid. But the fact is owning a family restaurant, making real food from scratch is built deep into the fabric of our country. Uh, it's under assault, has been for decades uh, from chain restaurants, and frankly, from an attitude on the part of many people that, hey, it's just food, who cares? 
so that much or most of the food Americans eat, certainly in restaurants, isn't cooked. It's defrosted or microwaved, uh, which I think is a real shame. I, I think it would be helpful for people to realize that good food, and I'm not talking about fancy food, a good hamburger made from scratch is going to be it's better good. than a hamburger that started out as a hockey puck. In in that, so maybe we'll start now and work backwards, but how has the pandemic affected that at this point, do you think? And what's the ramifications going forward? Well, the first thing the pandemic did was give a huge boost to the sale of ice cream because, and this is not a joke, when, when people need emotional reassurance, they're on the couch eating a pint. So the ice cream business did very well. And the kinds of food that came through okay are, for the most part, the kinds of food that I discuss in the book, which in many cases are comfort food. They're the things right. we're used to eating, the things that make up part of our daily lives. Yes, a lot of restaurants went out of business and will not return, and that is a shame. In terms of the kind of food that we're eating, we we, we love our pizza. We love our fried chicken. Um, we love our sushi. That didn't change. What did change was the way in which we obtain these foods when we're not cooking at home. Experts tell me that the percentage of restaurant sales from drive through order out or take away have gone up substantially, has gone up, I guess, uh, and will not return to pre-pandemic levels. We have decided we like getting our food that way. That's a significant change that's going to be with us for quite some time. And it also affects restaurants to a great degree that never did that kind of business before. When the pandemic forced white tablecloth restaurants to do curbside delivery service. That really is a new paradigm for the way in which restaurants operate. One of the, in my views, I guess, in my view, I guess, downsides of of all of this is that the pandemic has given a huge boost to the creation of so-called ghost kitchens. Ghost kitchens are restaurants without a building. They are brands that are created from which you can order right um and someone will bring your food you can't even pick it up the only thing ghost kitchens can service is delivery but one restaurant tour can have five different restaurant concepts working out of the same ghost kitchen and that's all fine and good but the number of front of house staff and and probably line cooks when when you look at it closely sure used in a ghost kitchen leaves an awful lot of people who used to work in physical restaurants unemployed. Right. And that's, and that's had a huge impact. And it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's a, a reverse on the concept of when we started running tight on commercial kitchen space mm-hmm. is entrepreneurs would use restaurant kitchens on off hours to right. make packaged goods. Right. And then now we have the whole, this idea of, yeah, with the, the ghost kitchen. So you have, you know, Crave is one of the ones that, you know, delivery service that we use in Crave, you know, Crave has, uh, you know, a Seattle restaurant that they serve their stuff and another place from Kansas City or whatever else. And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. This sort of takes away the whole experience of going, to, first of all, going to a restaurant, which I can understand some of that a little bit. Um, I do a lot of cooking at home, obviously increased that a great deal during the pandemic. 
but I have friends who never ate home. I mean, and, and so they became the artisans of takeout in terms of what traveled the best, right? Uh, what they could have that, you know, again, they could reheat or whatever it was. So there's been that, that, that whole sort of shift, but you're right. The, the, the unfortunate part about all of this is of the people who worked in there, there's, there's less and not everybody was able to rebound from that pandemic or pivot during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, it just, we, we have to take a different look at that. Has well, this exacerbates a trend that was pre-pandemic, which okay. is that established and successful restaurants in New York and San Francisco, and I would assume Los Angeles, but I haven't watched that as closely, were shutting down because uh, of the cost of rent. Right. Landlords, right. when restaurant leases come up, for the most part, landlords have figured out they could make a lot more money leasing the space to some other kind of commercial endeavor. So if you don't have to pay for a restaurant, but you can cook food and serve it to people, there's a real financial incentive there not to have bricks and mortar. But you also mentioned something else in, in, in your comments a minute ago that I find quite interesting, which is the diminution of regionalism among foods. It used to be that I would look for, I, mean, I still do, but it, going somewhere meant looking forward to the food you could only get there. Mm -hmm. A business trip to Central Texas meant, oh boy, I'm going to have the best, uh, best brisket in the world. And a business trip to the Carolinas meant, yep. oh boy, I'm going to have the best pork in the world. Yep. And in the last few years, maybe 10 or 15 to be, to be candid, you're seeing regional dishes replicated throughout the country pretty damn well. Are Memphis-style ribs as served in, I don't know, Missouri or, or right. even Texas, as good as the ribs I'd get in Memphis? Probably not. But you know what? They can be pretty damn good. So, so now the, the old-fashioned part of me that wants the romance of having to go to Maine for a lobster roll confronts the reality, which is that there are lobster roll trucks, franchises, virtually everywhere in America now. And yep. given modern technology, the lobster they're using is, is pretty damn good. It's not as good as bringing it straight out of the water onto the wharf in Maine and eating it there the way I did as a child on vacation. But it's, you know, you get some, you give some. And it's, yeah, and that homogenization uh, also works in packaged goods as well, because as you had consolidation in grocery stores and you lost a lot of butcher shops and you lost a lot of mm -hmm. seafood markets and whatever, you began to, you know, you wouldn't expect that you would go to Denver and you would find, you know, Old Bay seasoning on the shelf, whatever. And it's like, okay, there it is. And now you can get again, almost anything anywhere, even from an, an, an ethnic, you know, standpoint. Well, um, the growth of ethnic foods in grocery stores has been huge. Yeah. Just yeah. immense. Yeah. Although I still look for um, grocery stores that cater to a specific nationality. Because yeah. that's, that's yeah. where you find the real hidden gems. Right. Exactly. You have a, you know, so you find a good Middle Eastern market, you know, right. and it's a very, very. Or a different. Mexican market or right. an Asian right. Right. market. What's interesting to me is the homogenization in Asian markets, Asia is a huge expanse of right. multiple different countries and cuisines. And yet 
we now have very large Asian markets that cater to a variety of Asian cuisines. <laughs> right. It would be like totally having yeah. an American market that, I don't know, caters to, to locks and bagels and barbecue. <laughs> Although the premise of my book is that to some extent that's what's happened. Right, right. And so when... And obviously, when you get done with a, an eleven-year run on a you know a, a eleven show, season, that eleven season, like, sorry, 11 yeah, it's like four yeah, eleven that show, eleven season yeah. run, and you produce a lot of shows. It's very, it's fast-paced. It, it, you, you know, you're you're on the road. You're doing a lot mm -hmm. of stuff. When you took a little break, did mm -hmm. the idea for doing a book crystallize, or did you have someone approach you and go, David, you really need to put this down? No, it was, it was, whenever anyone told me I needed to put something down on paper and write a book, it was someone talking about my experience as a news producer uh, uh, internationally. Right. And I can tell those stories um, as well as anyone to um, make myself sound like a big shot over a glass of scotch, but I, I didn't find that interesting. There have been plenty of books written about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, however. Inside every television producer is this little ticking time bomb that, that, that says, I don't need the crutch of pictures. I can do it all in words. And one day I'm going to write a book. Because writing for television, while in many respects far more difficult than writing prose, because it's a balance of sounds and visuals and words. And, and when you write for television, your job is mostly to get out of the way and make sure that one event flows nicely to the other. Yet there's always that book thing sitting there. I, I can do that. I, I can do that. After many years of percolating in the back of my head. See, after Diners, I did another series. I syndicated a series called Beer Geeks, be, which yeah. was about craft beer and its um, overlap with food, right. including cooking with beer and uh, beer and food pairings. But through that time, the book idea was was growing in the back of my mind. After uh, the craft beer show, I spent some time doing some work for a streaming startup and finally said to myself, you know what? Now's the time. So I sat down and made the idiotic decision to do the research for the equivalent of a dozen books. See, I could have done a book on hamburgers or right. I could have done a book on chicken wings or I could have done a book on Chinese food. Instead, I decided to do a chapter each on 12 different foods or foodways that pretty much required the research a book would have required. So that was one beginner's mistake. Um, I figured it would take me a year. It took two years. But um, I'm really very, very proud of, of what we ended up with and of some of the people who, who agreed to talk to me for the book. I mean, Cecilia Chang is, was, she passed away recently, was the most influential voice in, in the development of Chinese cooking in America. At the age of 100, she sat down with me in her Pacific Palisades apartment in San Francisco to tell me how it happened. She went into the other room. She came back with a manila envelope. She pulled out of it one of the original menus for her groundbreaking Mandarin restaurant, complete with ballpoint pen strike throughs and additions. Um, Daniel Balloud talked to me about, of all things, hamburgers. This multi Michelin starred chef uh, invented the quintessential gourmet hamburger uh, many years ago. Actually, yeah. I have to look at my notes. 
it's a hamburger that is stuffed with uh, braised short rib, braised in red wine, and foie gras. And he explained to me that one of the reasons that he was motivated to create that burger is because there had been protests in France against McDonald's. And in some small town in France, they had burned the local McDonald's down. And Balud thought to himself, that's absurd. What's wrong with McDonald's? And then he thought, what's wrong with hamburgers? And they said, you know, what? I'm going to make the ultimate French hamburger, the one you'd have with a good glass of red wine. Um, he, he's delightful. I, I had the opportunity to talk to pretty much the woman who made the lobster roll a national favorite, uh, the, the, the most famous pizza guy in all of America. I went to pizza school at, oh. at his pizzeria. Damn. And boy, that's hard. You try making a wood-fired pizza, you'll burn yourself and fail miserably without right. extreme coaching. So I yeah. got to talk to a lot of, I talked to Jerry Greenfield, who is the Jerry of Ben and Jerry's, mm -hmm. who is a delightful guy. Talk to Marvin Lender of the Lender Brothers, who invented the nationally distributed machine-made frozen bagel. Right. And Ma Huge. Marvin, he has um, no compunction about discussing, you know, people claim his bagel is not as good as a New York bagel. It's different than a New York bagel. He says, of course it is. We're going for a national product that would be palatable to people who were not New York Jews. Right. And Marvin, you're right. Um, it's been a lovely kind of journey of disco. Oh, I got to I got to slice smoked salmon behind the counter at Russ and Daughters, which is one of the oldest so-called appetizing stores, smoked fish right. and such on the Lower East Side of New York. And all I ended up with was was salmon tartare. It's very <laughs> hard to do. Talk to Mel Brooks about uh, about his history as a young child when locks for his family was an expensive indulgence that they could only afford on Sundays. And he joked to me, he said, of course, when times got better, we had it on Tuesday too. Because <laughs> a chat with Mel Brooks is, is something very special. The fact that, I mean, when we think about when you, when, or when you go travel as you have in Europe and stuff, and you think about American cuisine or what the concept is of American cuisine, and it's usually... I, I, most of the people that I had talked to relate immediately to something that we've taken, like pizza would be the first you know, one, and, um, and, and, and changed it around. And, and sent it back. Yeah, right. And they either think it's a great idea and it's like really wonderful, mm -hmm. or they think it's like we've committed the most heinous act you know, in you, culinary history. by you, doing can, you can get California rolls now in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An, an item uh, invented in right. Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, pizza Hut. And um, Domino's are expanding at an immense rate internationally because they've kind of run out of the U.S. Right. And for the most part, my sense is that when you get one of these quintessential Americanized versions of other countries' foods sent back to those countries, it, it's coming back as American food. I'll tell you a funny story. When I would, uh, when I was producing overseas. Um, one of the ways I, I got in touch with a country or culture was initially through food. And wherever I went for the first time, I would say to the locals there who helped us out, we, you know, you'd hire drivers, translators. We had the same bunch every time in most cities. I would say to them, take me where you eat. So the first time I was ever in Vienna, 
I said to the drivers, hey, guys, after we feed New York, which was going to be like 1130 at night, I said, can you take me someplace you love to eat? And they said, sure. And they took me to a Texas barbecue joint. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Okay. What goes around comes around. My my good friends, I was living in the UK and my birthday came around and they decided that they were going to take me out for a steak. Oh, yeah. And we went to it was a, a chain, but it's called Schooner, the Schooner mm-hmm. Steakhouses. And boy, I'll tell you, um, I've had some bad pieces of meat in my day. Mm-hmm. Very few approached what Schooner Steakhouse was offering. Yeah, but come it on. Was, they were taking you to the. I essence. know they were. I know. And it's I like bad. taking a Brit to Tad's in New York. I think you know, there's like, one still left. Yeah. You know, to me, actually, if you're going to talk about British imitation of American food, when I was working out of the London Bureau for NBC, I actually developed a fondness for Wimpy Burgers, which oh. is a British-based chain yeah. that sells hamburgers that's based on the character of Wimpy from the Popeye cartoons. Right, right. You know, um, the disappointing food for me in the fast food category in the UK was fish and chips, which were soggy. Is it were or was, I guess? It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Which were... Right. Generally soggy as hell. No, they can't. They can't do them properly unless you can wrap it's, it in newspaper. Well, no, I'm talking about <laughs> you go to a chippy. Yeah, and it to me that that was the one British dish that just didn't do it for me. Right. Yeah. How hard is it to deal with frozen fish and frozen potatoes? It, yeah, I get get the timer on, right. On the other hand, while living in Britain, and this was many years ago, this was the geez early eighties. I had some of the finest Lebanese food I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I had some of the finest uh, Indian and Pakistani, Pakistani food, food that I've oh, yes, I mean, absolutely. London, like New York, is a remarkable pastiche of great eating. Right. Very little of it British, but. <laughs> right. Well, that's right. Yeah. And, and that and that supposedly now I've been back several times. I'm sure you have, too. That's changed a whole lot now. It's, now yes, we the general quality. This, yes. This upper crust British with bone marrow and they're doing all this stuff yeah. and it's like uh okay. well you're talking you're talking about blumenthal who yeah um heston blumenthal who who collects michelin stars um the, the way squirrels collect acorns yeah no uh, uh haute cuisine in britain has reached phenomenal lengths i'm talking more about everyday generic food if you find the right places no country well not no country it's become very good in the United States. Let's put right. it that way. Right, right, into that. And I think it was, um, you know, when, when I was working um, at my agency in, in, in San Francisco, uh, south of market, we, uh, we went through the, what I call the architectural food phase, which was, right, everything was piled. Well, you know who started that? It's separate. Uh, Alfred Portali started that at the Gotham Bar and Grill, and he's no longer... They, they actually forced him out last year after 30 or 31 years. He's now running, and I don't know what the pandemic did to it. He opened up an Italian yeah. restaurant called Portales. But uh, the whole climbing tower of- Right, everything. Uh, of, especially using those latticed potatoes, uh, <laughs> fried potatoes, to, yes. to take yep. you up a couple of levels. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, put all that stuff on top of it. And, and, and then it was like, and then we- uh, and that was probably just, well. Thomas Keller had opened French Laundry, of course, which was, mm-hmm. was going a whole different direction. But even even with Thomas Keller, there was kind of this his idea of you know what we really need to be able to just do a roast chicken here. Well, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, and 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 let me you know it's like 
before Picasso was putting both eyes on the same side of a lady's nose, yeah, he was a highly talented, realistic painter right. who could whip out a real portrait as well as anyone. And and some of the avant-garde chefs um, did the same sort of transition. I was lucky enough to eat at Alinea in Chicago, um, one of the, um, if not earliest, certainly most talked about temples of uh, this new kind of gastronomy, molecular gastronomy. And in the middle of a tasting menu of all sorts of absolutely outrageously brilliant things that didn't look like any food I'd ever had before, he brought out a plate of beef done in the style of Escoffier just to prove, yeah, we got the classics down too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we, can, we can do this. So, so we went through the, the construction phase. Mm-hmm. Then we went into the deconstruction phase. Right. So do, is, is that something that, do I need to have a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich deconstructed? Is that artwork? Or where, no, see, in, in my mind, I, if I want a bacon, lettuce, and tomato salad, fine. Give it to me. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the concept of deconstruction. I'm not a big fan of playing with my food if there's no reason to it. And I certainly don't want to leave the table feeling as if I haven't eaten. Right. I literally crawled out with my wife of 11 Madison Park in New York after dropping an insane amount of money on dinner for a milestone anniversary. We looked at each other and went, I'm starving. <laughs> Let's go get you know, something it, to eat. Yeah. Uh, look. There are once-in-a-lifetime meals, and that's wonderful. I, um, I don't think those should be the standard by which other food is based, because that's not food. That's experience. Right. It's entertainment. Okay? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's all fine and dandy. And I have been to two restaurants in America that I believe were worth the stupidly expensive experience as long as you can afford it at that moment in your life. One was Alina, Alinea. The other, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, was in Las Vegas, the restaurant Guy Savoie, which is the counterpart of Guy Savoie in Paris, which is named for the chef, which at the time I ate there held two Michelin stars and was one of the great meals of my life, uh, especially since my wife and I were taken there by the agent with whom we were pitching a project. So we didn't pay anything for this $2,000 meal, but it was one of the few tasting menus that actually was food. And that was thoughtfully put together. And that was presented comfortably where without losing the starchiness that you wanted of a $2,000 meal, the waiter could still talk to you. It was a delightful experience. Um, In in terms of, you know, we, we, so we've been through all these different things and obviously the proper preparation of food and experiential food and all those things have come a long way outside of the New York's and San Francisco's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can go to some extraordinary restaurants in Kansas City, Fort Lauderdale, whatever. Arguably the best pizzeria in America is in Phoenix. <laughs> okay. Pizzeria actually, Bianco. Pizzeria Bianco. Okay. Yeah. All Chris right. Bianco. Is, I gotta go. Chris Bianco is the leader of the artisanal pizza movement in America. And um, everyone who's ever been, and I have not yet had the opportunity, 
is talking about it years after the visit. It's it's apparently extraordinary. And I talked to Chris. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm put, in my book, list. Food Americana. Yeah, exactly. And 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 uh, by the way, folks, it, and I'm I'm sure you're all hungry now, and you want to read the book, so it is available on Amazon, right, David? It's Amazon. Walmart's got it. Target's got it. Barnes and Noble has it. Um, and my daughter is still attending a very expensive <laughs> master's degree program so, folks, at Columbia University. So please buy several. <laughs> buy several. I like it. Um, okay, so now are we going to turn Food Americana into a special or a series? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, let me put it this way. I'm not going to go pitch it. I, I'm really deeply into writing books at the moment. I already have. I've gone through several careers in my career. Yeah. I was an yeah. investigative reporter. I was a foreign journalist. I was a morning show producer. I was an investigative unit producer. And I'm a food journalist. Um, my, my, my latest career is being an author. So I'm going to pursue that. Pursue that. Um, the written word. But anyone who wants to option the book and make a show. Make I, me an I, offer. Think, I, I think you could do an hour on fried chicken. No problem. Oh, I mean, you could do burgers, forever could on do, fried yeah, chicken. Yeah, you could do a series. I mean. Well, but see, fried chicken, one of the lovely things, didn't mean to cut you off there, Steve, but hey, um, one of the lovely things about researching the book was learning all of these things I did not know. Where do you think fried chicken came from? Don't know. It was most likely a combination of two sources, Scottish immigrants. There was a tradition of frying chicken in Scotland Hmm. and enslaved Africans who turned their cooking techniques and... um, flavor and spicing knowledge to the chicken. So it's basically a Scottish African dish that uh, has been growing by leaps and bounds in the United States, although generally not as a whole bird. Uh, We, uh, David Portolatin, who is one of the leading um, food analysts in the U.S., explained to me his theory on how new foods develop, which is that Americans love to try something new if they've already tried it before, which means <laughs> we knew we love fried chicken. So we were an eager market for chicken tenders and fried chicken sandwiches. I mean, the fried chicken sandwich war of 2019 and 2020 was epic. I, I talked with the Popeyes executive who launched it all with one brilliantly snarky tweet. Uh, it, it certainly blew them away. But chicken. <laughs> perhaps under the guise of being healthful, has been taking a bigger and bigger portion of the protein market in the United States. Of course, as Portolatin points out, you can say you're being healthy, but we we do tend to fry it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Which sort of negates what you're yeah, you know. right for there. Um, David, what's your take on uh, frankenmeats and, uh, and, and the cellular... Well, structured pork and all of it. Now I chicken. Don't, I, don't, I don't mind um, the concept of growing meat in a lab. Um, I, I'm conflicted about um, plant-based imitations, if only because the imitation is never quite as good as the original. It's like I have veggie, vegetarian friends who go on and on about things that almost tastes like bacon or um, all the all the things you can replicate with tofu, to which my answer is, you know, a, a burger now and then ain't going to kill you. Why, 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 why go to all fake? this? Now, having said that, there are people who have strong moral and ethical reasons for um, staying away from meat. That's great. 
it's obviously a growing niche, probably growing faster than people expected. I, in my conservative long-term view of history, I don't expect it to, 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 to cross over into this is what we choose first anytime soon. Right. But I think if you're playing defensive food service, you don't want to not have something on your menu when five people go out to eat and one of them is a vegan. Yes. So there's there's certainly a place for it. And, you know, I mentioned um, 11 Madison Park earlier. Uh, it shut down during the pandemic and was famous for its duck, its foie gras, dishes like that. Uh, the owner has announced, the chef has announced he's reopening in June and he will only be serving um, plant-based items. Now, he, he may slide a little bit into dairy, but there will be no meat on that menu. Will it work? I don't know. It, it's um, it's certainly a stretch. I, I got it. Oh, he's yes, a hell of, I, I he's a, hell of a was, chef. So, yeah. you know, yeah. if if you can make me not feel like I'm missing something, I don't care. That's fine. He can do a lot with mushrooms. Uh, oh, absolutely. Of, yeah, oh, look, there are extraordinary vegetarian dishes out there and, and you know and that's that's not an issue i i like to i like to tell people that last as far as i know that cow ate plants so i, I think we're all, i think it's okay i got plant-based right right here I'm, I'm yeah, and we look we get into any number of of ugly issues i think um the modern factory farm is revolting yeah um and on the other hand without the modern factory farm i'm gonna have to cut down on red meat would I cut down on red meat so that we don't, or even chicken, so that we don't treat animals that badly? Yes, I would. Um, but I would be the tail following the dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are others who are, I guess, uh, better activists than I am in that by making the choice now, instead of having to make it, they think they're pushing us in that direction. Um, that's fine. Yep. And they may be, but yeah. Yeah. But it may be also a long, a long ways down the road. But but it also it also gets to a different discussion, which is localism. Um, whether it's organic or not, that's a debate for when we're talking about conserving the planet. I would prefer to eat items that have been produced very close to me because a that means I'm eating them during the season in which they're good. Right. Um. B, they just tend to taste better. I mean, I, I live in South Jersey. There's nothing like a Jersey tomato. Now, it's ugly, it's misshapen, and it is certainly not genetically produced, modified to be round. Yeah. But it's damn fine. Right. It's, yeah. Um, I think that in terms of, you know, local, obviously, and, and that has come a long way, too, in terms of mm -hmm. farmer's market and um, in, in where I live, um, I'm available. I can go buy beef and see the cows in the pasture, pasteurized eggs, all of those, all of those great things. When you live in Des Moines in the middle of the winter, that's a little bit harder to do in the produce section, but we still, I think that falls back to on the local area is can we go back to doing serious canning and freezing on a local level, right? So that I'm still I, eating the tomatoes from down the road. It's just, they were canned at the height of the season. And now rather than they were made in New Jersey and shipped in a, tin can truck all the way to California for me to buy. Well, I actually tried that one year. We were living in Minnesota, <laughs> which has an excellent farmer's market in 
can't recall if it's Minneapolis or St. Paul, but we would go there. Yep. And you could buy local beef, that sort of thing, which was quite good. But I decided this winter we're going to live seasonally, which basically means root vegetables and preserved tomatoes. And I, I couldn't do it. Um, partially because the tomatoes were so damn good, I, I zipped through them too early. But it's very hard to consciously live with only that which is really available. Now, as Ruth Reichel told me, the, the noted food journalist, yeah. about lobster rolls, eating a lobster roll outside of Maine is like eating strawberries out of season. Well, the fact is, um, she's right, but we all eat strawberries out of season because we've demanded it. And as a result, we eat less wonderful strawberries. And that concept, uh, you know, uh, the the taste idea. So I I grew up on a farm in upstate New York and we grew asparagus. Mm. Well, you don't know what asparagus tastes like if it's been out for a day, right? right? What you do is you cut asparagus, you put the water on to boil, you steam it or you saute it, and it's been out of the field a couple of hours. That's asparagus, right? Well, It, it immediately starts downhill. So in when I lived in Germany, are you familiar with spargel season? No. Spargel is the German word for asparagus, or, or yeah. so I was told. If it's a yeah. slur, I anyway. <laughs> spargel season is when the asparagus are ready to be um, harvested before they break through the ground. There's uh-huh. no chlorophyll that has come in contact with them, and they're right. white. It's white and asparagus. There's of this tradition of serving entire meals made of nothing but white asparagus. And it's absolutely fabulous. Just okay. fabulous. Got to, got to put that, got to put that on the list. Yeah. Spargo um, season. So David, Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. It's food Americana. Um, I want to ask, ask you a question about one more question about food network before we go. Mm-hmm. And that is the evolution of food network. Mm-hmm. I was at one time a good percentage of, watching shows, but I saw this evolution of the network from basically a very similar production value and theme to Saturday morning PBS mm-hmm. to CBS sports spectacular with food, food as competition. And I just, I, I, I loved the original iron chef because it was a joke, but mm-hmm. then they started iron chef America. And I was like, this isn't funny. <laughs> and, and you guys are looking like you're serious. And, you know, how did that thing of food as competition evolve? And does that really draw? I mean, obviously, that's why they do I, it. I can't speak for the Food Network, and I'm certainly not going to criticize the Food Network. But I will tell you that what happens in cable is not limited to networks with targeted audiences. In other words, the genre of competition from The Apprentice to Eating Worms uh, to whatever, as people increasingly turn to uh, streaming services to find deeper entertainment, um, on both cable and broadcast, uh, it's clear that there's a huge audience that wants to see competitions. And television's a business. So So it's going to happen. You do what you have to do. Um, TLC, which recently featured, you know, my 600 pound life TLC used to stand for the learning channel. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the history channel when they used to have programs history. about history. Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing. So I, I, I can't criticize a business for going where the business is. 
Right. That's just going to going to happen. Well, David Thay, thanks again. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And it's Food Americana, which you can find at Amazon, Walmart, Target, good places. And and then, by the way, look for another one because David's obviously got one or two in the in the uh, in the bag, as it were. And hopefully when you do the next one, we'll have you come back on again and we'll talk about what happened after the pandemic and what our new normal is. I'd love that, Steve. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. And thanks again to all the rest of you for joining us in the Next Level Brands podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational resource for CPG entrepreneurs and emerging brands. Kitchen to Shelf is also the sponsor of Words to Grow By, a collection of great advice and inspiration from guests who have appeared here on the Next Level podcast. So if you need some weekly counsel from fellow founders and industry leaders, try Words to Grow By from Kitchen to Shelf, available at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and by free subscription at kitchentoshelf.com. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands Podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.